0: Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. The words that I'd like to direct your attention to today will be in the, the first part of that chapter, verses 1 through 13. In verses 1 through 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. and do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother to death and a father, his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Please pray with me. Lord, these are very sobering words. And I do pray that that actually you will continue to sober us as you give us understanding into what What these words mean to us and even our lives, what we pursue, what we let go of, what we aim at. Lord, I pray that you would sober us even as we consider uh, the various calamities in this world, particularly the plague of COVID-19. And Lord, that You would also strengthen and encourage us through Your Word. And Father, if there's anyone listening, watching, who is not yet trusted in You, who's not yet trusted in Christ, as Savior from their sins, we pray that You'd open their eyes even today to believe in You, that they might receive forgiveness for all that they've done and walk boldly with confident expectation of eternal life we ask all these things in Christ's name amen well after celebrating the Lord's resurrection last Sunday uh, we return once again to the book of mark and pick up where we left off in mark chapter 13 and you might recall that in uh, mark chapter 13 uh, sorry verse the, the section that we're in that began in verse chapter 11 and runs through the end of chapter 13 it's it's all about the tension and the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders it it began in chapter 11, the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem and it actually ends with a prophecy in chapter 13 about Christ's triumphal return the the true triumphal entry into Jerusalem you could think of it and it is this second coming of the Lord which is addressed in the chapter before us. And this chapter, I think, can most easily be broken down into three sections um, Tremors, which we'll look at today in verses 1 through 13. The Tribulation, which speaks of that seven year time period that immediately precedes Christ's return. And then the timing of when all these things will take place in verses 28 through 37. And I've entitled the message uh, of this sermon as Tremors of the End. But the biblical metaphor that Jesus uses is actually birth pangs, as we'll see. And like birth pangs, um, tremors are often signals of is going to take place. Uh, four shocks actually is the, the technical term that is used. And growing up in California, I was well acquainted with these sort of these foreshocks, these tremors that would precede an earthquake. Uh, I'd gone through. I remember very clearly three major earthquakes uh, that uh, I experienced, and every time we would feel a tr- small tremor, which was probably I mean, every other month or so, uh, it would cross my mind: Is this just a foreshock, or is this as bad as it's going to get? Something worse to come. And in the text before us, Jesus actually mentions earthquakes along with famines, wars and persecution as indicative of the era from when the era of time from when Christ died up until his return. And in describing this period, he presents four warnings that we need to heed so that we might endure into the end. And the the outline Broken down this way. First of all, don't forget how temporal things are. And don't be misled by fi- false messiahs. Thirdly, do not fear the calamities that are going to be indicative of this time period from, since the death of Christ. And fourthly, do not be surprised by persecution. Let's look firstly at the command to not forget how temporal things are. Verses 1-4. through four. It says, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And again, this whole teaching in this section is about, is prompted by a remark made about the beauty of Herod's Temple. You'll recall that the first temple was built by Solomon, and then that was destroyed after the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, Babylonian captivity. So after that temple was destroyed, the Israelites returned to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, and then under Herod the Great, uh, he began the building, the construction of a second temple. And this is around the time of Jesus' birth. And the disciples describe the disciple here at least describes this building as wonderful apparently it was a pretty amazing sight. Uh, the roman historian tacitus said it was immensely opulent and josephus compared it to a snow-capped mountain to behold and presumably this disciple was being pious with his remark uh, given that the temple was a Um, A vital aspect of Hebrew worship, Um, both of the the temple structures that were established were built as uh, houses of worship, but it's important to recall that the reason God allowed these temples wasn't because he was wanting to impress people with his greatness, but rather he was wanting to aid his people in their worship of him. I think it would be helpful to to look once again at Yahweh's words to to Isaiah. A passage that we're familiar with. But look, look again at Isaiah chapter 66, where God speaks of the purpose of His temple. Isaiah 66, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then? is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? His point is, given His nature, there is no temple that could suffice to properly honor Him with the honor He deserves. So God is condescending to allow his, His people to construct a temple for Him, for the worship of Him, but really it's for their benefit but he wants his people to know that, that he's not primarily worshipped through the building of a temple or this magnificent uh, structure, but he's primarily worshipped through humble and contrite hearts. Look what he says in verse 2. But to this one I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and he trembles at my word. Now, th- th- this temple was Beautiful. And it is fitting that, that God should be worshipped in splendor. But more than, of the, than the splendor of a building, what He seeks is the splendor of holiness. Psalm 29.2 The psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord, glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And Jesus' point is in, in this passage of Mark is, like buildings and everything else in this world, They're transitory, but unlike the souls of men are not transitory. And so Jesus' dismissiveness of the disciples' comment is meant to help them realize this point. What matters is not buildings. What matters is hearts, because buildings don't last forever, but the soul that endures to the end, that is the one that will be saved. It's not buildings that last. He doesn't care about buildings. He cares about Souls, He doesn't care about what we construct for him as beautiful as it might be. He cares about our hearts in worship. And I think on a side note, uh, it, given that the context of our worship at this moment, the fact that we're prevented from gathering together during this pandemic, I think it's helpful to recall that this actually These circumstances don't actually prevent us from worship. Just consider again um, what happened after the Babylonian captivity. There was no longer a temple. It was destroyed. But remember how Dan, without a temple. Surrounded by pagans and pagan gods. Or Ezra and Nehemiah. They kept on worshiping God even without a temple. And likewise, we can continue to worship God even if we're prevented from that normal means of worship and gathering together. Yes, there is a loss. We are robbed of a massive means of grace, but we can still continue to worship without a worship service. Because again, worship is a matter of the heart, ultimately. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is, a, is an act of the heart, a, a volition to no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ, which we can do any place, any time, in any circumstance. And what Jesus wants His disciples to realize is that those that are used for worship, they're just temporal. They're transitory. And therefore, we shouldn't be overawed by beautiful buildings, and for that matter, great musicians or uh, fancy liturgies. And, and as helpful and as useful as those things can be, it's just not what worship really is about. It's about God, who is concerned for our eternal souls. And with the statement that not one stone will be left on another, Jesus is, is specifically prophesying the destruction of this temple which actually occurred in 80 70 and the disciples recognize that he's talking about the end times which is why this remark prompts them to ask the question they ask in verse 4 but what's also remarkable is that instead of jesus directly answering their question he instead tells them what they need to be aware of and what they need to do. Which tells us that what really matters is not knowing the future as much as knowing what to do. Knowing how to live in the present. What we need to be concerned about is not, is this the apocalypse? But how is it that God would have me respond in the circumstances that He's placed me in? And the first thing He he warns His disciples of is to beware that they are not led astray by false messiahs. Do not be led astray by false messiahs. Verses 5 and 6. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in My name saying that I am He. And I think by implication this warning would, would apply to not being led astray by any false teacher. But Jesus specifically warns his followers about false messiahs. And we know that because the people he's warning them about will say, I am he. That is the Messiah. I'm not aware of very many false messiahs in history. Certainly there have been some uh, over the past 2000 years. Some notable ones were Simon Bar Kokhba, who, who led a Jewish rebellion And uh, I think it was the second century and established a Jewish state for a short period of time. There was also Moses of Crete in the fifth century who persuaded the Jews of Crete to uh, actually walk into the sea as Moses had done uh, in order to return to Israel. They didn't, in fact, return to Israel. They ended up in the sea, as you would expect. In the eighteenth century, there was Joseph, or sorry, Jacob Joseph Frank who claimed to be the reincarnation of King David. Uh, in the 20th century, Sun Myung Moon, who you guys might be aware of, who was the leader of the Moonies, claimed to be the second coming of Christ. Didn't actually claim to be Christ, but the second coming of Christ. He had a nuance there. But nonetheless, Dia. And of course, there was also David Koresh and the Branch Davidians who made national news through their fiery conflict with the uh, ATF in Waco, Texas. So there have been a handful of false messiahs, but given what Jesus says here, there's actually relatively few, which tells me that this is probably a phenomena that is going to get much worse in the future, which all the more is reason that we should take heed of it. We should be wary. And so we need to guard ourselves from being led astray by false messiahs. Secondly, he tells us not to be afraid of the calamities that are going to happen in the world. And this is, of course, a very relevant word for us who right now are in the midst of experiencing a worldwide pandemic. Jesus says in verse 7, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquake famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. So Jesus tells us there's going to be wars, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, massive devastations. But these are just signs of what is more Devast- I should say, more devastations to come. They are not signs of the end. They're merely warnings that there is an end coming. And such natural consequences are going to take place. And they are natural consequences of living in a world corrupted by sin. The wages of sin is death. And these, all these things, wars and famines, these are the natural consequences of sinning. Death that comes into the world on account of sin. And Jesus calls them birth pangs, which tells us they're not merely natural consequences, though. They are warnings, and they're meant to be a warning. Contractions are not the pinnacle of the birthing experience. They're they're merely precursors of greater contractions, more painful contractions that are going to come. I love how one nurse described them uh, in the diff- in, to first-time mothers. If you can talk through a contraction, she said, you're not ready to leave for the hospital. Jesus is saying, these are just the kind of contractions that you can talk through. Yes, they're bad. They might hurt. These things aren't good. They're painful. But they're nothing compared to what's going to happen in the future. Jesus says these are just precursors, merely the beginning of the birth pangs. And the point is, very clearly, things are going to get much worse. Much worse than coronaviruses. Much, much worse than Indonesian tsunamis. 9.0 earthquakes or nuclear wars or category 4 hurricanes. In fact, we know that the years immediately preceding Christ's return that is prophesied in other portions of Scripture, that there's going to be such devastation during those years that one-third of the population of the world will be wiped out. In today's population, that would mean 2.4 billion people. And that's a statistic that makes the Holocaust look like a drop in the bucket. So things, brothers and sisters, are going to get much worse. And I don't say this to make light of the sufferings of this present time, but rather to highlight how bad things are going to get. And that's what Jesus means to highlight. All the devastation and wars that that we see in this life are merely precursors to what's going to happen in the future. Yet, he also says it is not fitting for us to fear these things. And we're told why in verses 9-13. through So we know that we're not to be misled. We know that we should not be afraid. Thirdly, we should be on guard for persecution to come. Don't be surprised by persecution. He says in verse 9, be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. So again, this, this era of time between Christ's death and what's known as the tribulation will be defined by false teachers, false messiahs rising up, be defined by worldwide calamities and problems. It's also going to be defined by persecution. And so Jesus tells his followers they need to be on Their guard. Bad things are going to happen. But we need not fear because things that are going to happen are purposed. And they're purposed by a sovereign and good God. We're told here that their their purpose is not destruction, but salvation. Look at that in verses, the end of verse 9 and verse 10. God wants people to recognize their desperate need for a Savior. So even though Jesus tells His followers that they are going to be dragged before legal courts, and they're going to be beaten and whipped in houses of worship, they'll have to stand before political rulers. He also says this at the, at the end of verse 9. Notice why they're, they're going to have to face all of these awful things. All this persecution. He said this because so that they might be a testimony to them. And verse 10 continues that idea. The gospel must be preached to all nations. And brothers and sisters, this is the goal of the church. It, the goal of the church is not to make people feel better about themselves. The goal of the church is not to erect big buildings that people might think, wow, God must be great because churches are big and... Beautiful. It's, the purpose of the church is not to move hearts through amazing guitar riffs or beautiful melodies. Even well-crafted lyrics. The goal of the church is to reach the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ. And the church exists during this, this period of tremors for this end. that's why God allows these awful things to take place so that, Christians might stand up and be a testimony to the rest of the world where hope can be found, where rescue can be found from the judgment that is to come. And and so the purpose of the church is to be a testimony in the midst of persecution. So God's not trying to protect the church from calamities, earthquakes, famines, whatever it is. He wants the church to be in the midst of that. Not because He doesn't care about His kids, but because He cares about those people who have yet to be saved. He knows all of us are going to die. Christians are secure. It's everybody else that's not secure. And it's those people that Christ is most concerned about. So He puts those people with a testimony in the midst of these troublesome things to be a testimony so that others might be saved. So Jesus is saying, you will be persecuted Because the gospel must be preached to all nations. And knowing such persecutions are appointed by God, and knowing that they're, they're purposed according to His goodness and His sovereignty and His love, He tells us we don't have to worry about what we're going to say when we stand before rulers, when we face persecution. Because the Holy Spirit He says will speak through you. I don't think this means that that any time that we speak, once we have the Holy Spirit, once we're saved, that any time we speak that the Holy Spirit is speaking through us. I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus gives this promise for a specific instance. Notice what it is when Christians are called before governing authorities in order to bear witness to the gospel. So this promise is when we, they have to stand before governing authorities. Like when Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. Or Paul and Barnabas when they stood before Sergius Paulus in Acts 13. Paul before Festus and Felix in Acts 23 and 25. In, in, in such cases, Jesus tells us because that we do not need to fear because God Himself will give us the words that we need to say. I think another instance that comes to mind in a situation like this was Elizabeth Bunyan, John Bunyan's second wife, who, although she was an uneducated peasant woman, she stood before some of the most powerful men in England and and pled for justice on her husband's behalf. And Bunyan's biographer wrote of her, he said, Elizabeth Bunyan was simply an English peasant woman and she could not have spoken with more dignity had she been crowned a queen she did. And you read those words. uh, She spoke to to Matthew Hale and other governing authorities who hated her husband. Um, She spoke with incredible boldness. And I think that was because the Holy Spirit was speaking through her. And it's so telling that the comfort Jesus offers, along with this promise of persecution, is that the Holy Spirit would give us words to testify. So, again, just think about that. Jesus has just told his followers they're going to have to face horrific things, including awful persecution. And the comfort that he gives them is that they will be given word. So the comfort is not you're going to be protected. The comfort is you will be able to fulfill the very purpose for why you're being persecuted. I am going to help you give an accurate testimony to your persecutors so that they might be saved. And again, this only makes sense to a Christian because the Christian is the only one who cares far more about the gospel being spread, about people getting saved, than they do about their own physical and emotional well-being. Such a promise is only a comfort to believers. And the reality of persecution is disconcerting, but... But what he says next is deeply troubling. Because Jesus says that his disciples will even be betrayed by family members. Verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them. It's not siblings, parents, even children. And it's not just that Christians will be betrayed by family members, but it's that, they, that above all people, people that you would think they could trust, even those people, even those people will betray them. And not just betray them, but betray them unto death. We need to take a deep breath for a moment and realize that Jesus isn't being sensational. He's not just trying to ramp up our emotions. He's being just simple, and straightforward with the truth, brothers and sisters, this is what you should expect if you seek to follow Christ. And you need just pause and consider again what, what what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a Christian. He says you will be hated by all because of his name. Again, this is this is in this time period. So we shouldn't expect our ambitions to be made. We shouldn't expect adoration and respect. We should expect hatred. Hatred. Not our best life now. Hatred. Why Why would people hate Christians? What is it about them? Well, I think... Most unbelievers would not say they actually hate Christ, but Jesus says Christians are going to be hated on account of His name. But I think if you were to ask most most unbelievers if they hated Christ, most would say no. Why would they say that? Well, I think it's because, frankly, I think it's because Christians have not done a very good job of explaining what Jesus actually taught and who Jesus actually claimed to be. If if, they, if unbelievers actually understood what Jesus is demanding, the problem is we've tried so hard to convince and really deceive people into thinking they're a Christian so that we can add numbers to our churches or our organizations or for whatever reason, that people don't actually know Jesus who they claim to believe in. Because Jesus demands that all people, all people in every nation, all people everywhere, die to themselves and live completely for His worship. And if people knew that, that that's what Jesus expects, that He expects us to obey His Word, to submit to His Word, if we're to follow Him. When people realize that's what Jesus expects, they do hate Him. They do hate His words. But most people don't hate Jesus, because their idea of Jesus isn't true. It's not accurate. It's one that they've developed or one that they've been deceived into embracing and believing. It's not a real Jesus. It's a false God. Actually says, and what Jesus actually did, and who Jesus actually claimed Himself to be, people will hate Him. Because it forces them. It, it's a, he commands us to die to ourselves. Which is the very thing every unbeliever is loath to do the fundamental desire in every person's heart is that we want to be worshipped and when i when I say we want to be worshipped, I don't mean that we we want people to bow down and sing our praises, at least not in most cases. What I mean is that... We want things our way, and we want things right away. And if if, if things don't go our way, especially all the more in this era, it, it's, it's obvious. When things don't go our way, we think that some sort of injustice has taken place, and, and we demand our rights. We we want people to respect us and admire us, and tail, tailor um, their lives according to our expectations. And when we when we meet people that disagree with us or uh, think differently than, than us. People cry out injustice and they demand some sort of penalty for the transgression that somebody might have a different opinion than they do. And, and this, is evi- this is evident in newspapers, in blogs, it, it's just it's, it's in schools, on college campuses. This is the air that we breathe. And, and the reason people react this way is because it just exposes just the same reality we all have. We want what we want. And that's the problem. That's the problem that Jesus came to solve. The, 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 the selfishness, the self-centeredness is the problem that we need to be saved from. That's sin. We were not created to live for ourselves, but we were created to live for God. And in order for us to live for God and to want to live for God, our hearts must be changed. We need to recognize that we have a sin problem and only God can Change that sin problem. When Jesus comes along and tells us that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and He alone, and that unless we die to ourselves and submit to Him and His Word, we will be punished for all eternity. When we hear that, when people understand that that's what Jesus teaches, they will hate Him. And when we tell people that, they are going to hate us. Not because not because we're jerks. Of course, if they hate us because we're jerks, well, then we deserve to be hated. It it doesn't say people are going to hate you because you're obnoxious or lazy or you're a pathetic excuse for a human being. It says they're going to hate you because you tell them the truth about what Jesus said and did. And they will. And it's not about you. it's It's about Christ because they don't want to stop worshiping their God, namely themselves and they can't unless their heart is changed and it's our job to help them understand can't they help them understand how it can be changed again jesus is hated because he claims to be god and christians are hated because they share the same message and the evidence that a person is saved the evidence that a person's heart has been changed is that they will endure in this commitment to no longer live for themselves, but to live for Christ. They'll endure in that commitment the rest of their life. They won't back down. They won't give in. They won't go back to their old life and their old habits. They will continue to repent and continue to, to live for Him and for His glory, not for themselves. Look at James chapter 1, verse 12. It says... Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Also, 1 Peter six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is why persecution and hatred are to be considered a blessing for Christians. Because persecution and hatred confirm the miracle. They let us know the reality of the miracle that has taken place in our hearts. Because nobody... Nobody who's still living in their sins is going to continue to allow themselves to be hated because it's completely unnatural. It's completely against everything that, that, that feels right to them. Only a person whose life has been miraculously transformed by the gospel will continue to bear witness to others and want others to be saved, even those people who are persecuting them. There is no way to explain that except from the reality of the Holy Spirit transforming a person's heart through the power of the gospel. And there's evidence of of this this sort of endurance and persecution throughout history. And we love those stories. In the winter of 320 AD, for instance, the Roman emperor made a decree that every Roman soldier needed to demonstrate his loyalty by sacrificing um, oblations to the Roman emperor, or at least to the Roman gods. And there was a famous legion of soldiers called the Thundering Legion or the Theban Legion, and they had 40 Christians in their ranks. And when when these Christians in this legion heard of the order to sacrifice to the Roman gods, they were very upfront. and they they, they told their commanding officer, we will not do this and this is why. We bow to no other than Christ. And after being beaten and then imprisoned, these men were forced by their own legion, their comrades in arms, they were forced to to, uh, march to a frozen lake and then they were ordered to take off their armor. And after they were stripped of their armor, they were ordered to take off all their clothes. And they stood there naked. And the the aim was very clear. They would freeze unless they repented of their convictions. The rest of the legion lit a large fire on the shore. And next to this fire was a warm bath and food. And their aim was to to tempt these Christians to come back to the Roman gods, to renounce their Christian faith so that they might save their lives. And they would call out to them and beg them. You can come ashore when you are ready to deny your faith. But these 40 men began to pray. Oh Lord, 40 wrestlers have come forth to fight for you. Grant that all 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. the mother of the youngest legionary that was present, actually was able to entice her son to abandon the others. So they were down to 39. However, there was a centurion named Sempronius who was on the shore. And as he saw their courage and their resoluteness, their steadfast confidence in Christ, he too confessed Jesus as Lord, removed his armor, his weapons his clothing and join the 39 remaining Christians on the lake. And the next morning, the 40 martyrs of Bass were found on the ice and forever recorded their faithful resistance in the annals of history. Share this story, not to be sensationalistic at all, but, but, but to point out this is normal Christianity. Given what Jesus says in this chapter, this is what we should expect. This is how we should expect to be treated. Jesus is telling us that we live in an era of tremors that are going to be characterized. Characterized. Normalcy. Characterized by earthquakes and famines and plagues and persecutions. And so it, it, when, during this time period, when people come up to you and they ask, well, do you think this is the apocalypse? Do you think this is the end of the, the age? It, the answer is easy. No. 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 Because this is normal. Jesus said this is what we should expect for the last 2,000 years. We should expect coronaviruses to come. We should expect world wars. We should expect famines, even in America. We should not be shocked that this is happening in America. Jesus says this is what you should expect. You say, even for Christians? Yes! Uh, For Christians of all. So that we might be a witness to others that like those 39 faithful legionnaires, because of their witness, led another pagan to Christ that we too would want to lead others to Christ even in the midst of this this plague that we're experiencing. And, and again, yes, the situation right now with the coronavirus is, is bad. It is bad. But at the same time, it is just a tremor. It's just, it's just the beginning of the birth pangs. Much, much worse is to come. And so knowing that, knowing that, we need to take Jesus' advice and not forget how temporal things are. This world is passing away and everything with it. Secondly, we need to not be led astray. We need to be very vigilant to consider people's claims and line them up with scripture. Not fear this stuff is normal this is what we should expect and a good and sovereign god is behind all of it even if it hurts even if we experience loss there's a good purpose we can trust in christ in that and fourthly we need to be on our guard knowing that god will use these things both to confirm the reality of our faith that we really are christians and to spread the hope of the gospel to others, so that they too might be saved. Let's pray to that end, Father. We want to be such faithful Christians, and we do. We we honestly confess we have lived lives of luxury and ease. Lord, we we are we are easily uh, shaken because of of a deadly illness, because we are just so used to ease, and we we confess that we have we have grown to expect our life to be. Easy, our ambitions to be met, we expect to be appreciated and respected, live long lives. We expect to not lose people we love. And yet, Lord, we also realize that Your Word tells us we should not expect such things. You do not promise those things. And so, God, I pray that You would continue to reform our mind, to think according to Your Word and not according to the, the, the culture surrounding us, that we would not not be deceived, we would not be blind, and we would not be shaken. Because we want to be a good witness, especially to unbelievers. And so, God, we say we trust you. Bring whatever is necessary so that your elect might be saved. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.